1: Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, and transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Verisage Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we're talking about the perennial gale of creative destruction. Hey, Ed, how's it going?
2: Hey,
3: it's good, Ron. You know, it, it's been a while since we did have done a topical show.
1: I, I know. I can't think of the last time we did one, actually.
3: <laughs> I, I will tell you when it was. It was It was right as the Great Suppression was getting ramped up. And it was a Free Rider Friday on March 27th. And just wanted to let our listeners know that Ron and I have made a decision about creative destruction and are, are getting rid of the Free Rider Friday format during the, our regular show. We'll be, still be doing a lot of free riding if you subscribe to our bonus episode on Patreon. And that's where we'll focus. There might be an occasional free rider thing that pops in now and again, but it will not be a regular thing that is every last Friday of the month. So we're we're subject to our own creative destruction, aren't we, Ron?
1: We definitely are. <laughs> uh,
3: the good news is is that you know it's because we've been been booking all these fantastic guests: Doctor Paul Thomas, Jody Thompson, Doug, Dan Mitchell, Adam. Uh, Davidson and Deere and of course the great Deirdre McCloskey.
1: Yeah, Dr. Ozra, Ozra mm-hmm. Raza, was another one. Yeah, it's been amazing. It's been an amazing run. Yeah, but I, I'm glad that we carved out a show for this, and we should have done it a lot sooner because this is just one of those phrases that is—it's um, called a mini narrative in economics. You know, there are just certain phrases that conjure up whole things like if i say invisible hand mm-hmm. right if i say revealed preference if i say a, a conspicuous consumption right these Correct. these are things that that you know contain a lot of knowledge in a, in a small amount of words um may, my, maybe my favorite is uh larry summers nobody ever washed a rental car <laughs> <laughs> I've even tried That's to c- contribute with this to, to this uh, mini narrative with surgeons' piercing ears. But uh, either way, uh, Schumpeter has... Uh, Schump- Schumpeter, I think is how you pronounce it, actually, um, has left us a great, great concept here with, this, with creative destruction. And I, I sh- need to point out that the economist Werner Sombart uh, actually coined the phrase... But mm-hmm. Schumpeter made it famous.
3: Yes, and it was a transition because there was the, this the concept of creative destruction, and I was not aware of this until I did research for the show. And that's one of the great things about doing this is that the concept goes back even further than that to Karl Marx.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep.
3: Where Karl Marx, although he did not use the specific term "creative destruction," it was it was implied in a lot of his analysis but what i think is most interesting is that he only really saw the destruction part not yes. not the not the creative piece so he got it right but he got it exactly right for the wrong reason <laughs> and, and and that is because what he saw was is that, that 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 capitalism would sow the seeds of its own destruction because it was all about increase and this is economic efficiency and doing things better and and making sure that the production schedules were met on a quicker basis and he saw it as destroying jobs and what i find absolutely fascinating ron is i had never uh, realized that it goes back as far as marx but now i totally get it when people especially those on the left are they're really just echoing marxism and marxist thought about this is they only see the downside. They only see this as taking away jobs. They don't see it, A, as the creative part, the stuff that that allows us to, to innovate and grow, but they don't see the fact that it also then is, is a necessary condition for the continued improvement of of, of our lives.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Uh, <clears throat> and it's interesting because Schumpeter, who's kind of hard to a label although he did call himself a conservative um, he was for certain interventions in the economy um, so he's he's an interesting interesting thinker along those lines but he also didn't think that capitalism would survive but for different reasons than mr marx yes, yes. Um, which is probably a whole nother show Ed, to get into you know <laughs> what what schumpeter thought and why he thought it and what he thought might replace it but I, I did find it interesting that um, you know he he um, he used to love saying he enjoy, he he enjoyed saying that he aspired to become the greatest economist, horseman, and lover in the world. And then he said things were going things were not going well with the horses. <laughs> Good for him. <laughs> so he, had, he had quite an ego. Um, uh, but the first time he used the phrase was in 1942, and it was in his book, which I, which I went and revisited uh, this morning, Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy, uh, which he wrote in 1942. It's his magnum opus, basically. And, and look, it's, I don't know if you've read this thing, but it's a, it's a, you want to talk about a hard read. You know how we talk about Hayek not being a very quotable writer? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Neither is this guy. <laughs> um, it, it is brutal to find a, a a pithy quote, uh, you know, or pithy line from him. Um, but he said for gales of
3: creative destruction.
1: Yeah, and, and in that context, he said creative destruction is the essential fact about capitalism. Stabilized capitalism is a contradiction in terms. And he he was also one of the first economists who really brought in the entrepreneur into the model. And he realized that he couldn't measure it. It was messy. It was human. It was, you know, indeterminable because it was about the future. Uh, but he did say every piece of business strategy acquires its true significance only against the background of that process and within the situation created by it, it must be seen in its role in the perennial gale of creative destruction it cannot be understood irrespective of it. In other words, every business person knows that the ground beneath their feet is crumbling. And that's the and, ultimate risk.
3: Yep. And, and they have to take that into consideration if they want to move forward. And, and, you know, the, and we're going to go through, I'm sure lots of examples today, because I think that it's the, it's best understood through, through those examples. And, and, but I think the the guy who who exemplifies this for me, of course, is is Steve Jobs, and it's probably cliche, but here's a guy who who really set in motion this this idea of creating an innovation and a new product that would would effectively cannibalize his own business every twelve to eighteen months.
1: Yeah. And and not only that, he was a serial entrepreneur because he just kept doing it, you know, mm-hmm. in different industries, as we've always talked about. Um, yeah. And, and, and the other great thing about Schumpeter is he, he you know, he's, he's kind of to capitalism, what Freud was to the mind, right? He, he's someone whose ideas are just so ubiquitous, um, that we can't separate, you know, our thoughts from his almost.
3: Agreed. Well, and isn't it that one of the, the columnists in The Economist is called, called Schumpeter?
1: Yeah. Yeah, he is. In fact, I'm, I'm reading his, uh, article right now, <laughs> talking about Unilever, but, uh, yeah, he's one of my favorite too.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, and, and he did, uh, he did say that economic progress in capitalist society means turmoil and he, he referred to it as dynamic disequilibrium and he had great respect for Leon Walrus, uh, uh, the economist who came up with the whole equilibrium theory he, he thought it was the closest thing to physics e- economics will ever get to but he obviously didn't believe in equilibrium because <laughs> markets <laughs> just don't behave that way is there their dynamic disequilibrium which i and i love that phrase too
3: although try to explain that to people dynamic disequilibrium probably creative destruction is probably a little bit easier to get your mind around
1: It is. But, but, you know, you're right about whether it's Marx or even today's media, the problem with the creative destruction is we can measure the destruction really well, but the creativity tends to be incremental or not seen. It's part of that seen not seen phenomenon. And that's really hard to deal with because when the factory closes, you know, and you can see the town, you know, uh, boarded up or whatever, that's visible. But, the jobs that went somewhere else or some other product that, that rose up somewhere else and is now employing those people that's hidden from view. Mm -hmm. And, and that's really, really tough. Um, it's, it's one of the things that he says, you know, he says, um, new ideas hurt people earning their income from old ideas. He said, but if we don't allow anyone to get hurt, we'll stay at $3 a day. You know, and if we allow this process, we'll get to one hundred and thirty-seven dollars a day. You know, this is part of Deirdre's great enrichment, um, and with that additional wealth, you can create a safety net. Yes,
3: I, I think the easiest example when I when I try to explain this to people to to show is is to talk about agriculture, and to say when the when the United States was founded, or let's just go to eighteen hundred across the board, eighteen hundred. and and it ties in with McCloskey's date as well is that 90, I think 96%, 95% of the people in the United States were involved in some way in farming. Well, by 1900, that was down to 40%. By 2000, it was down to 3%. And now it's right around
1: 1%.
3: And yet food production continues to increase and we don't go, Oh, what about all those farming jobs that we lost? that, (laughs) (laughs) Was <laughs> was a big problem, so I think people can see it can see it there. And of course, the the other side of it, and this is really the tough part, to keep both of these things in your head. That if it weren't for the significant reduction in our ability to to spend less time or less less uh, manpower on on farming, well, we wouldn't have people who would have then gone into creating automobiles and creating airplanes and creating the, uh, the other examples that come from this is, you know, the Polaroid camera. We'll probably talk about that one cause it's a, another classic, but all of those things wouldn't have existed because we wouldn't have freed up the capacity to do this. And and one of the things I definitely want to do with you on is talk about th- this and how, how we can, can apply this inside a professional firm.
1: Uh, yes. Excellent. Um, no, that's exactly right. And, and, uh, you know, one of the the lines that I I love that he talks about, um, uh, where is it? I lost it. Um, He, um, oh yeah, the capitalist achievement does not typically consist in providing more silk stockings for queens. The achievement consists in bringing silk stockings within the reach of factory girls in return for steadily diminishing amounts of effort. You know, just like we talk about how long does it take to you know, buy a Thanksgiving meal, you know, that whole, that whole labor, um,
3: the Simon index, the the
1: Simon index. Yeah. Um, That's what, that's what capitalism is really, really proficient at is bringing, you know, once luxuries to the masses where -hmm. they become necessities. And he constantly talks about that uh, in his work.
3: Yeah, great stuff. Well, Ron, look, we're up against our first break. Want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website, as we talked, is always the soul of You got show notes up there, previews to upcoming shows, the archive of all 296 and 95 shows, I'm sorry, that we've done. We're counting down to our number, show number 300. We've got a special treat in mind for that. But right now, a word from our sponsor. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients.
2: For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com TSOE and subscribe now. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
0: tuned into the soul of enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed class to find out more about our show, visit us on the web at the of You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. now back to the soul of enterprise.
1: Uh, the perennial gale of creative destruction and Ed, you know, he, he's got that line, new ideas, hurt people earning their income from old ideas, which I just love. But this whole from $3 a day to $137 a day, that, that which is an incredible leap in terms of wealth, standard of living for everybody across the globe, as we've seen. Uh, it, it, this wasn't achieved because of wage regulations or legislations or minimum wages or unions. Um, it, it just doesn't have anything to do with it uh, because all of those things tend to preserve the old jobs which actually inhibits prosperity you know like you said if if those farmers hadn't been freed up to move to the factories to produce those other things automobiles and a host of other uh, items then there's no way we could have had the leaps in prosperity that we did and that was also something that he pointed out uh He also said. I think that's
3: an important point. I just want to spend a a minute on that because that leads to the whole conversation that we've had. Uh, You you should always ask compared to what, and uh, I'm I'm sure that people are saying, "Well, yeah, people left the left the, the the farms to go to those factories, those nasty factory jobs." Okay you know being a farmer was not uh, all that <laughs> no. hunky-dory back in the day either no way no way right yeah is it not a tractor moving stuff around no it didn't didn't quite work like that yeah so, so it compared to what so yes were it were, were the factories some in s- sometimes terrible conditions yes absolutely child worker terrible conditions Yes, absolutely. But compared to what? It was like, oh, compared to today, the kids were sitting around playing Fortnite. No, that's not <laughs> what they were doing.
1: No, they were getting injured and killed from you know farm machinery and other things. Yeah, it was a, it's a hard life, man. It's and uh, it's a lot longer than a ten hour, twelve hour factory shift or whatever. And it's not six days a week; it's seven days a week.
3: Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, exactly. You know, the other thing I love about Schumpeter is, is he, uh, he's given a talk to a business audience, Ed, and he says, uh, he says I'm not into remedies. He says, I'm not running a drugstore. I have no pills to hand out, no clear-cut solutions for any practical problems that may arise. <laughs> So just kind of like the whole, you know, libertarians, oh, I'm a libertarian, I don't do solutions. He, he had yeah. the same, he had the same attitude. I just thought that was a great, great line. Um, no, it, it
3: is because it, it, it is, but it is what we often talk about, which is there are no solutions. There are trade-offs.
1: Yep. Yeah. And he didn't say it like that, but he got close. But I just love that. I'm not running a drugstore. I have no yeah. pills. <laughs> <laughs> I think the blue pill or the red pill? The red pill. Uh, there you go. Okay, so here we go. So in 1911, he laid out five types of innovation that define the Entrepreneurial Act. Now think about this, 1911, you obviously introduce a new product, right? That's Mm -hmm. that's obvious. Now, but Ed, that's the point. These seem obvious now. They weren't when he wrote them. (laughs) Nobody had even put a framework around something like this. There was no Drucker yet. You know, there were no business books. So introduce a new product a new method of production, opening up a new market, new source of supply for raw materials or carrying out new organizations or or new types of organization of any industry. In other words, we'd say business model today,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: changing the business model. He nailed this in 1911 and it was not obvious at the time. It's it's really obvious today, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't back then. Uh, And one of the interesting thing is, is if you look at a company like Michelin, when they started producing radial tires, which was, you know, a big improvement in tire technology in the Mm -hmm. 1940s, that basically ended Akron's reign, you know, Akron, Ohio's reign as the rubber capital. And it killed off five tire companies, except Goodyear. Goodyear was left standing. But that was a huge shock of creative destruction.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And the other sure. thing is, I you know GM did the same thing to Ford, uh, and everybody thinks it's because you know Henry said, "Well, you can have any Model T as long as it's black." That nothing that really didn't have anything to do with it. it was because GM offered financing on their cars, and they did it in 1919, and Ford didn't do it until 1928 because he had this Victorian attitude against credit, didn't think you mm-hmm. should have consumer debt, and GM got got the big jump on him, almost a decade, and just ate his lunch because of that. But the the thing I find so interesting about this creative destruction, and this is something that Deirdre's work gets into in great detail, is just the fact that you start a business and it could be destroyed, not physically, but spiritually, by a competitor. Mm. And we've learned to accept that. As okay and fair and even ethical, and yet that's a radical idea.
3: Yes, and because previously the way that you would be would protect it is go to the king and get some kind of a a, a charter and say, okay, let's make this guy stop. <laughs> exactly,
1: <laughs> for sure. In fact, you probably yeah. were granted a monopoly for your lighthouse or whatever from the king.
3: That's right. That's right. Well, I I like this. These examples are, are really good, Ron. And you know, the, one one of the ones that that I think is also easier for people to see. I mentioned the 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 one the, the agriculture, but and that one's over hundreds of years. But but one that's a, a, another example that all of us, well, maybe not all of us who are listening to this podcast. We have we do have some young people who listen to this, but you, you and I can remember that when the cassette tape replaced eight tracks. I remember my, you know, my dad in, in our car when I was a kid, it, he had an eight, eight track player. Sure. And, you know, you put, you used to push, push it in where the radio was the, the dial on the radio. It looked, was, was really cool. And it would you know, play three songs before it would click over. And it was, yeah. on, and, and those tapes were, were horribly susceptible to breakage. Yeah. And if, if you played it 20 times, you were pretty much done. Uh, because it's a it's a really interesting thing that if you ever took one of those suckers apart the way that it has to to to, to roll itself up and then play itself out
1: right right different
3: yep. way it was really it was i think it was actually a huge mobius strip which you can look that up in, in math but so the cassette tape replaced that which of course in turn was replaced by the compact disc which of course was in turn undercut by downloads of into mp3 players which now is that's being usurped by by web streaming. Absolutely. And you know, so here here's an example of something that has continued to make things better and what I just just love about this is just think about the the the, the choices we now have in music and yes, People are not dropping albums and making millions and millions of dollars on, on albums the way they used to. And the record companies, and well, the, who also made millions and oftentimes ripped the, the artists off in, in really, I think, some pretty bad contracts that they had. But think about all of the, 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 the bands that have come into existence that, okay, so maybe they're not making the huge, big money, but there's lots of more people overall who are making their living in music. And there's some pretty good music that's come out of this.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's slowed down the innovation in music at all. And in fact, Ed, I think the whole, you know, used to make millions. That's, that's overblown. Let's face it. It's, it's still the Pareto principle back mm-hmm. in when there were contracts, right? 10% of those artists made 80% of, 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 the, of the money probably. You know, mm-hmm. same with books or anything else. I mean, it's, it's, it wasn't evenly distributed And now they, yeah, but they have a chance to get their music out there on Spotify. You know, if you like this, you'll like this song too, and all of that. And then uh, they build up these fan bases and play these live gigs. Uh, So there's been an effervescence of creativity, I think, in that industry. I don't think there's any evidence that it slowed down the creation of music or good music.
3: No, in fact, we we have used several people in the music business as examples of of great pricers. Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails is yeah. what always comes <laughs> to mind, and and Radiohead, the, who, yep. who, who who were fantastic pricers and clearly way ahead of their time. They they really t- tick people off because they jumped around the whole record company when they released an album that just said here, just put in what you think you want to pay for it.
1: Right, right.
3: And I think some of them now are even moving to subscription models so it, 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 it can you imagine that you subscribe to a band
1: yeah yeah well if they build a value proposition there'd be a lot of people that would do it just like the mm-hmm. newspapers and and magazines are figuring out you know they can have live events meet the editors you know meet and greets whatever a lot of a lot of uh, outfits are doing that quite successfully
3: mm-hmm but if you would just quickly go back around and, and read read the six the, the the six again i just want to hear it one, the yeah, one more time yeah it's, oh, it's five
1: it's five okay uh, and this is, again this is Schumpeter in 1911 laid out the five types of innovation that define the entrepreneurial act an introduction of a new good a right. new method of production opening a new market a new source of supply of raw materials and carrying out of new organizations of any industry so i i kind of read that to be the business model you know you're Mm -hmm. somehow reorganizing how you do things
3: Mm -hmm. yeah some really interesting stuff there
1: and from 1911 that's pretty impressive
3: no that is (laughs) damn impressive that is incredibly impressive
1: that was better than what uh Frederick Taylor was talking about around the same time. <laughs> Let me just say that.
3: Get out the stopwatch, Freddie. Put the, put the stopwatch down, Freddie. We got this. Hold my beer. Hold my beer. <laughs> hold my beer. Hold my All right, stopwatch. Ron. Yeah, here we are down at the bottom of the hour. Remind you the way to get a hold of us the soul of where where is our website. And if you would take a moment right now, if you're listening to this as a podcast, hit pause on your player and go to rate. My, rate this podcast.com slash TSOE and give us a rating. We we really love for you to do that. If you want to take the extra step and go to one of the services and write a review, Ron and I love to read reviews on the air. We would love for you to be a, a part of that. And as mentioned previously, the Patreon site up at patreon.com slash TSOE, where you can get the bonus episodes, which include what used to be our free writer Fridays, plus the episodes uncut and without commercial interruption. But Right now, a one of those commercial interruptions from our sponsors. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting and analytic solutions to do more for their clients.
2: look you don't have to listen to me anymore there's a commercial free version of this show and it only costs ten dollars a month and for fifteen dollars a month you get no commercials plus bonus content go to patreon.com slash tsoe subscribe now and be free you're worth it
1: welcome back everybody we're talking about the perennial gale of creative destruction and ed one of the interesting books i read on this topic because i heard him on russ roberts show was uh from arthur diamond jr and he wrote a book called openness to creative destruction sustaining innovative dynamism and that's kind of his preferred term for capitalism innovative Mm -hmm. dynamism uh, and he said in, in the course of writing that book and exploring creative destruction, and he profiles a lot of different entrepreneurs and industries you know, where this happened, he said he had two epiphanies. Um, innovative dynamism can give consumers both lower prices and new goods. And I think you know, Schumpeter came to the same conclusion, but it also uh, consumers and workers benefit. In other words, it's not just, it doesn't harm the worker for all the reasons we've talked about, right? The farmers went to the factories and were more productive and earned a higher wage over time. Uh, But one of the other things he talks about is the whole concept that innovation or invention is inevitable, right? And we hear this, even Matt Ridley has said this, you know, that if Edison hadn't invented the light bulb, many others would have. Right. And he doesn't buy this so much. He, he realizes the light bulb that probably, you know, the time was ripe. It was going to happen if Edison hadn't been able to do it. But it's still usually driven by some type of maniac, you know, monomaniac that's just totally focused on, on bringing it to market and finding uh, the price point that works and all of that. Um, but, but one thing he says is, but wait a minute, there's nothing inevitable about this bad government and bad policies can shut it down. And he cites China, you know, and and how its culture valued credential civil service over entrepreneurship. And then he, then he cites, and I'd never heard seen Kevin Kelly write this, but the guy from Wired once argued that innovation is so inevitable that no Marxist could slow it. But Diamond points out, but under Stalin, That's exactly what happened. (laughs) You know, it can, it can be stopped this that be for all the reasons we've discussed, the destruction is visible. It's not liked. People don't like not being able to make money off their old ideas. Uh, you really have to, you really have to embrace an unpredictable future to embrace the consequences of creative destruction. You know, somebody said, I forget the entrepreneur who said this, he said, but necessity is not the mother of invention. You are.
3: Yes, I, I agree. The, the, I think we do have to acknowledge that in the, sh- in the short run, there, there are real costs to, to, to people and sometimes individual lives. Let's, let's take oh, the sure. example of Uber and, and, and taxi cabs, especially with regard to, say, New York City. Yep, where where those those medallions were, uh, it was a million dollars to purchase one. I mean, if you actually wanted to own a, a cab, one of the yellow cabs, I, I think the people would mortgage their houses or take out long term loans, Absolutely. and within with, within a relatively short period of time, they they became almost worthless or significantly went went from near a million to I think way way less than that.
1: They did. Right. And, but let's point out that the medallion owners were rarely the drivers. Correct. <laughs> they were different, different people.
3: <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. But, but there's, there, there is still a, a point there to to note that, that it, it, it hurts people, right? These innovations yep. do hurt people, but what are you going to do? Are you going to say, well, and, and, you know, various cities, including Austin, Texas, which I never understood because it was such a technology, technology savvy city, outright banned uber or created laws that made it so that you had to call and wait 15 or 20 minutes before somebody was picked up i mean it was just you know that stupid now fortunately these things were have been overturned but you can through really bad policy create a situation where you don't allow this force to happen and the protectionism will rule the day and that's that's that is the the death knell for the economy
1: right because that'll keep you back in that three dollars per day and not let you get to 137 and I think you know Sean Bader's point was well just allow this process to unfold sure you're going to have winners and losers but have a safety net for the losers
0: mm-hmm.
3: which is only allowed because we have allowed creative destruction to take place for so long yep that we have the wealth to do that. This is the argument that we we have have made on a couple of the bonus shows that we've done, that the great suppression that we are in right now has only been enabled because we have the wealth to be able to do it. We 30 years ago, 40 years ago, we didn't do this with the, the what was called the Hong Kong flu in, in 1969 and 70. We did not do this and no, it was way worse.
1: Yep. No, because we weren't as wealthy or we choose to spend the wealth we have doing other things and now we have a lot more surplus wealth to to, to lock things down. So just
2: mm-hmm. yeah,
1: and it, and it doesn't get the credit that it deserves. You know, it really doesn't. Wealth no. does explain a lot of things. as you know, I know, I know uh, Stossel has written a lot about that. Certainly Thomas Sowell has written about that. You know, like when you know, why does an earthquake destroy uh, so many uh, much property damage and and kill many more people in a poorer country than in a richer one? Mm-hmm. You know, it's wealth.
3: Yep. Well, and even even something like the, the, the Kuznets curve, right, which which those of you not familiar with, it says that it's only through the creation of wealth and we reach a certain threshold that we begin to care about the environment. And w- one great example of this that is in a in a couple of the, the, the videos that I watched about this concept is for roses have always been very, very popular in the United States. And during all seasons, not not just February 14th. But even then, fewer and fewer p- places could produce roses in the United States. And what you had to have was a hothouse in order to be able to create these things. Well, w- what has happened since we've opened up to globalization is n- now these the roses are grown in lots of different places and are flown in. And you might say, well, we're, that's terrible. We're flying these roses in on airplanes. Yes, but consider that compared to what? Compared to a keeping a, the energy to keep a, a hot house in, in, I don't know, New England or Minnesota operative to grow roses so that you can have lo- roses locally it, during, during Valentine's day. How, how much energy was that using?
1: Yeah, no, it's exactly right. And I'll tell you, I have a uh, good friend of the family uh, that is in that market the, the flower market and, and roses and, and uh, you know, they get up early, they're like chefs, you know, they're at the market at like 4am uh, mm. and that is a complex market. Ed, you would not believe how complex it is. Future prices. Oh, sure and, it is. And, mm-hmm. It's just on the distribution channels and just, Oh, and trying to smooth out the demand and get the, the roses where they're supposed to be or where the demand is. It is incredibly complex and it just comes off. Lawlessly.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, just walking into your local Kroger and having the ability to purchase flowers there—that—that that, when I was growing up, you didn't buy flowers in your at your at your grocery store. store. Yeah, <laughs> you you could buy seeds. That, that was probably the extent of it. Maybe now a little have have- little potted plant, but.
1: Of course, you have to have a license if you want somebody to arrange them for you. That person oh, is a because well, you know, yes.
3: <laughs> you know that that flower arranging could be damaging to the public. Run if this somebody <laughs> does it takes, you know, those wires. Man, if you don't know how to properly wrap the the roses in those wires, you could really harm somebody.
1: <laughs> so, Ed, you you know, you mentioned we should pull this down into the firm level, talk about this at the at the micro level of a business or a professional firm. Let's do that. Um, okay. One interesting thing, Warren Buffett, and you've probably seen this in various things, and I don't know if this was one in one of his famous shareholder letters or in a speech he did, but he popularized this term moat, you know, shielding yourself from competition by building a moat around your business and thereby creating a sustainable competitive advantage. And he laid out eight ways to do that. And all of these are gonna be very familiar to our listeners, we, we talk about most of them all the time. The first way is intellectual property, right? You can have patents and copyrights and all of that. You can have specialized skills or business processes that, that you use that maybe others can't or don't. Uh, you have exclusive access to relationships, data or cheap materials. So your social capital, your structural capital is different you have strong trusted brand, which is a big moat, which is why Warren Buffett likes brands like Coca-Cola and Apple and, you know, other major brands like that. You have substantial control of a distribution channel. You have a team of people uniquely qualified to solve particular problems. You have a network effects or other types of flywheels, you know, that give you momentum, right? The whole Facebook two billion people are on it. So that's, it creates this amazing network. Um, and you have a higher pace of innovation. And those are his kind of eight things to build a moat. And that can certainly shield you from, uh, from this creative destruction, but only until it can't, right? Yeah. One, one thing I found funny researching this was Elon Musk on a May 2nd, 2018 Tesla earnings call said, moats are lame. <laughs> and if your only defense against invading armies is a moat, you will not last long. Uh, and in his opinion, you know, he thought that the only sustainable competitive advantage is creating a culture that supports an incredibly higher pace of innovation,
3: mm-hmm.
1: which was, well, that was, yeah, it, that, that goes, was, goes that was, to... yeah, it was his last point. <laughs>
3: yeah. yeah. But it, it, the, it's out out innovating. I think that's that's a uh, Champy Hammer and Champy, right? It, it, they they talk about the the only sustainable competitive advantage is out innovating your competition.
1: Right, but you know you, know, you think about those eight things that Buffett laid out, mm-hmm. and again, you know, intellectual property and uh, pace of innovation, strong trusted brand. You know what? Eastman Kodak had all these things. They even had incredible innovation because they had incredible profits, which funded, they had a, a very large R and D budget. Um, and in fact, they invented the first digital camera back in 1975, but the timing wasn't right for digital photography back then. Right. There wasn't this, this, uh, whether you want to call it an ecosystem, I know you hate that term, uh, but you know, the, the technology just wasn't there yet uh, for this thing to catch on. And even as late as 1999, Kodak had a 27% share in the digital camera space. But of course, once the iPhone came out, by 2012, they filed bankruptcy. Yeah. And, you know, Daniel Kahneman has this theory called theory-induced blindness, which, you know, it leads us to see what our theories predict rather than what is actually in front of us. And how many times have we seen this, you know, Kodak only looking at film or um, uh, who was a Xerox park, part of Xerox saying, well, how can we possibly monetize the computer? There's no, there's no copy meter on it. (laughs) You know, (laughs) we, we just get so trapped in our own theories, our own business models, and we, we can't see what's in front of us.
3: No, it's a, and it's a huge problem. Wow. What, what a topic, Ron, this is going to be fun. We'll, we'll, we'll take you home with maybe t- t- applying this more to individual firms and what you potentially can do to make it work in your organization. How can you can create th- some of those moats or even become a creative destruction yourself, but want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending that email to ask TSOE at verisage.com. We'd love for you to go out and not only give us a rating, but a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. And we love to read them on the air. So please do that as well. And of course we want to mention our Patreon site one more time where you can see, where you can listen to uninterrupted commercial free versions of this show, as well as our bonus episodes. That's patreon.com TSOE. But right now a word from our sponsor and my employer Sage.
0: Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN.
3: Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com.
2: Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like The Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop!
1: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
0: are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
1: Well, welcome back, everybody. We're talking about creative destruction. And and Ed, you know, the thing that Kodak story tells me is they just weren't paranoid enough. You know, and they didn't do the things that Andy Grove talked about in that book, Only the paranoid Survive. They didn't invest enough in the new model. You know, they didn't, and they didn't give up the old. At some point, you have to burn the ships. And as as Clayton Christensen points out, that's really hard to do if you're an established company. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's almost impossible, which is why so much of this creative destruction, uh, you know, the, the, the big companies are not, are not innovators. They're not, um, you know, they're hurt by it.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, it, 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 it goes to the the thinking about, you know, cash is cash is king, cash cow. And when you've got cash coming in because of a certain product, you gotta, you want to con- continue to ride that horse if you can. And, I I, I think what's so amazing about this, Ron, is how important the notion of the application of subscription model is to every business because the subscription model forces you to innovate inside your organization. You have to come up with constantly new things that are going to be appealing to those that you already serve. Yeah. Which is which, which why it's so wonderful, like Netflix and Amazon Prime and all of the new content that they're constantly after and, and serving out to us without increasing the price. You know, the new new season of Ozark comes out, they're not like, oh, it's another buck for you to, live, to, to, to watch it.
1: <laughs> yeah, no. And, you know, even as much as we're champions of, of the subscription model, I know that too is subject to creative destruction. And the companies operating on that model are going to be subject to creative destruction because others are going to come along and offer a better value proposition.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, and, and maybe it, even even it's go back go back to a different value proposition with a slightly different twist.
1: And and I think this is one of the things that's really interesting. Like when you when you read Chumpator and and just other economists too, uh, versus say reading business books or management consultants. You know, is it necessary? Is it necessarily tragic for a firm to die? No, economists have never thought that, you know, mm-hmm. they, they like to see that that dynamic disequilibrium, but management consultants, you know, good to great built to last. No, I don't want to I don't want to live in an economy where these companies last forever. I have no nostalgia for telephone operator jobs or bowling pin setter jobs. You know, this is absurd this 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 process is how we advance
3: mhm just just one note on on the whole camera thing and i think th- this is pretty interesting but we we there's been a recent resurgence in fact my daughter has one of the the polaroid camera mhm with the it's it's kind of a retro thing i it, it was also there was big for a while there and i think it's it's still a it, in the 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 meme space, but it's it's fallen off as back to 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 uh, vinyl records as well. right so it enjoys a slight resurgence from a but but that company that is Polaroid that's producing those Polaroid cameras is not the same company. They just bought the name.
2: And the technology.
3: Po- po- Polaroid itself was gone. <laughs> so right, right. it's It's a completely different company that really just took the Polaroid name. And I think some of the the patents and designs and has brought it back as a retro product and made it work as a retro product. But here is probably one of the most interesting things is one of the few things that my daughter is subscribed to on Amazon is the Polaroid film.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Well, you can subscribe to the uh, HP print cartridge, right? They did that in Mm -hmm. response to, the, the COVID and everybody working at home. And, and now you just have the printer cartridges just sent to you on a subscription basis. That was a brilliant move.
3: Absolutely brilliant move. And, and not only that, but I, I heard there, there's even because they, the, the, your connect, your printer is connected to the internet says we're running low on Cheyenne send that sucker out.
1: Yep. Yeah. Well, it's, it's amazing. Uh, you know, and how can we, how can we talk about this without talking to bringing in Richard Feynman, but he wrote a great book in 1988 called what do you care what other people think? And he says in this book, and I love this, this guy is so good. He said, I learned very early the difference between knowing the name of something and knowing something. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of like labeling our personality, right? Labeling it doesn't mean we understand it, but uh, I just, I just love that in the context of the subscription or, or even the, direct primary care or concierge practice, people say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with that model. (laughs) Yeah. You're familiar with the name. Do you know what's going on behind the scenes with this thing? Because it's a different existence. It's just a different worldview.
3: It is a different worldview. And what I've really found is in conversations that I've had over the last two weeks is how even people who I thought understood subscription don't understand subscription.
1: Yep. Well, we had a great uh, call on the Verisage Fellows call the other day where we st- talking about the metric of customer profitability. And you know, that's just a huge stumbling block mentally for even adopting value pricing. And, and it's why firms continue to hold on to their timesheets. I don't know if you saw that article out of, uh, I don't even know where it was, but that guy, Ed Mendelowitz, um, talked about how, you know, in some cases for some projects, hourly billing is the only way to go. Mm-hmm. And I'm just reading this and he, you know, he claims to be a big proponent of value pricing. And I know his firm still keeps timesheets, but that shows you the, the problem that that's the guy's problem. He thinks there's a link between time and value and, mm-hmm. and there's not. And it was just a ridiculous blog post. I, I, I didn't even want to chime in on it because it doesn't even, it doesn't even warrant a mention. It's so inane it's like, really, you don't think this has ever been tackled before by McKinsey or Bain and company who don't do anything by the billable hour? Come on.
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I, and, I, and I think let's, let's talk a, a little bit about innovation from, from an accounting perspective, because one thing that's, that I've had some pushback on is you and I have said that accountants have not been or the, the accounting profession has not been very innovative. And I just want to make something clear on this. I think that there is an incredible amount of innovation that account- some some accountants, bookkeepers are doing around their business model. When you and I say there hasn't been a, an, a innovations in accounting, we're talking specifically about the the practice and from a from a a technique for, from the, the FASB perspective, right? That that's what we're talking about. There have been some really great innovations, and certainly the the technologies that you know my company Sage and others have have put out there have been great stuff. But it, but accounting as a profession has really been held back, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, I mean a lot of the a lot of the innovation that has hit the accounting profession has become is is because of companies like yours, Ed. Mm-hmm. They come from outside the profession. It's the software publishers. It's the spreadsheet that wasn't developed by accountants. <laughs> what was the name of that little company? Visicalc. Uh right calc uh, yeah Visi-calc. you know uh, which, no mm-hmm. the accounting profession has has just added more rules yeah they have not been well, more innovative they've just added more rules now sure we have to respond to, to customers and all of that but yeah anyway this is this is just a fascinating topic we could spend a whole another show on it easily but what's coming up next week
3: another interview ron we're going to be talking with jody grundon
1: Oh, yeah. Summit CPA Group. He uses the subscription model or at least some adaptation of it. So I'm interested to learn more. So I will see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. In the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com for full show notes. And if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.